So, um, I think people <coughs> might appreciate if we went right back to first brass tacks. So you were um, in London, you studied politics, university, um, as an undergraduate, and then you started making films a bit before you went to film school. A little bit. Um, and um, which were the films that influenced you to want to start making films? What, what was the beginning of that? Um, I, um, I liked films when I was in school before I studied um, I studied Eastern European studies and politics. But I liked um, films um, prob- most back then probably mostly people like Karis Maki and um, some Iranian cinemas with Kyoros Dami's films. Right. Um, and then um, I think the National Film Theatre did a two-month retrospective of Iranian cinema in 98, I think it was. And I saw for the first time these two films by an Iranian filmmaker called uh, Saurabh Shahid Salas, mm-hmm. who made two, only two feature films in Iran before he went into exile in Germany in uh, the early 70s. And those two films were made near where I shot this film. <coughs> and... Um, and those still remain my two favorite films. Um, but um, yes, yeah, so I, I was just—I became interested, in, and also film because I was studying um, Eastern European studies and focusing on the Balkans mainly. As yeah, people like uh, Makavayev and Kusturica as well. Mm-hmm. But, um, mm-hmm. um, and then I came to film school. But when I came before I came, most of the films I've watched actually uh, were watched before I came to film school. I didn't—I I didn't watch many films when you were here. When I was here, and then afterwards, so. Mm. I mainly watched most of my films before I entered film school. Because I remember the, the, the films that you made when you were in film school were very kind of, they had a kind of graphic uh, simplicity. And, and, and there was, I mean, when you say charismatic, that's sort of very recognizable. Um, um, but also they had that, that thing that you, you get with, you know, there's a way in which Karastami's films are a bit like what it must have been in the f- in the forties and fifties to watch films by Rossellini. That sense that you're dealing with the truth, and you, you've got to. Y- 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 there's the shock of something being too true to uh, to deal with, um, and that that's very much the atmosphere that that's around the graduation film. Um, is is this is this is this person a natural um, Afghan in Tehran? Is he just there? We're we just putting the camera there because he's. Because that guy happens to be there, all of that question about 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 um, the level of authorship and what authorship might mean is 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 there. Um, so in a way, but but in a way, it's much more Iranian neorealism that that in, in, impacted on you. Um, y- yes, um, I mean, if we're talking strictly influences, I mean, I I. Um, if I, say I enjoy northern European cinema, for example, yeah. more than I would say I enjoy Iranian cinema. Yeah. I, um, besides charismatic people like you know um, Roy Anderson, yeah. or um, yeah. um, I mean I wouldn't. I don't know if Germany and Austria counts as northern European. But That's all right. Uh, you know I like Hanukkah, I like Herzog, and those kind of things. But Iranian cinema, besides yes, sorry, yes, Iranian cinema besides. Um, like some um, Kiarostami's film up to about, uh, films up to about 10 years ago and Sohrab Salas's two films there wasn't I mean yeah. I never got into people like Mahmal Balf I didn't like I didn't particularly I wasn't particularly fond of his films yeah. I didn't um, um, so 
And also, it was, a, it was a question of um, you know I only saw the Iranian films that made it out here because because um, there was no way of seeing the, uh, the, the rest other, of it. Yeah, the rest of it that you know gets shown in Iran because, unless mm-hmm. when I traveled to Iran because I lived here. And um, I think yeah, with Haydar definitely there was more of a, an Iranian overtly Iranian influence yeah. as opposed to yeah. Frontier Blues. If that's yeah, clear. thank you. Okay, um, I mean I, I wanted to see both because I think there's a way in which um, there's something very, very, very concrete and aggressively narrative in a way about the first film, and the second film is like a visit. Let's go to Turkmenistan and let's be in that place, mm. and it's got an extraordinarily powerful sense of of, of the presence of the of the place, which is very different from. Mm. I think, but I think Frontier Blues also took um, was. I mean, the Haydar happened very quickly. I, w- I went to Iran to make a documentary for my graduation film. I was, I, I mean, when I left London, when I um, to- told you know you guys what I'm doing, mm-hmm. the aim was to make a documentary about the Turkmen, and I got that One World Broadcasting Trust. Yeah. And what happened was I spent the money uh, um, from the fund on a camera, digital camera, and I went myself and you know stayed with my grandparents up north and started shooting Turkmen, and. It was absolutely horrible what I was shooting. It was just really... Um, I was you know, becoming like the photographer in Frontier Blues. I was taking all these cliched images of Turkmen living there. And being from there, I should certainly have known better. Um, and then, so I filmed and filmed and filmed. And I went, came back to Tehran to you know, catch a flight back to London two days later to edit the film in London. And uh, I still hadn't spent the school's money. And uh, I didn't want to graduate with a documentary because I knew it would have been terrible. So... Um, by chance, I met Haydar, who was making tea in an office. Yeah, and I just watched him uh, um, for about half an hour while I was in the wait, just waiting in that office waiting room, and um, just make just he literally just making tea and taking it to one room, coming back making more tea, take it to another room. And then that night, I went um, back home um, to my aunt's house, which is where I was staying. And I thought of just I, I came, I just wrote down a page. And the next day, I called uh, the guy who ended up being the producer in Iran of Frontier Blues, uh, Haydar, and also Frontier Blues. I told him I want to make this film. Would it be possible to have this much money? You know, <laughs> uh, I don't have much time. Um, I don't have a script. I have this story outline. And pretty, it happened very quickly. We shot in three days. Right. Um, we got a small crew, shot on 35. took three days, and we edited on a steam back in Iran in two days. I got. I did a sound mix and everything. I came back. You know, I hid the print in my suitcase. And All right. Came back and. Was that, so that happened because very otherwise the print would have been. Um, otherwise, I had to wait for the minister's uh, approval. We never got permission yeah. when we shot in and everything like that. And I didn't have time. I had to graduate. And um, and also, but, but Frontier Blues was was much longer in the, in my thinking. You know, it was. Yeah. It had been. Um, f- f- yeah, it had been far more developed in my thinking as well. That happened very quickly. But it was a similar process in the sense that 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 you had some people you'd graduated with, or at least one person who who had some access to production finance, and then you knew what film you wanted to do, um, and you'd come out of um, because Babak went then to the Cannes Residence. Tell us something about that. So 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 you graduated. Yeah, I graduated in two thousand six. I think beginning yeah. end of two thousand five, beginning of two thousand six. Yeah. I think it was. And then um, I submitted a draft of what became Frontier Blues, um, a very, very short draft of it, to the Cannes Center for Nassim Residency. And um, then I was shortlisted for the 12, went down, uh, for an, I was interviewed for an hour, made the final six. But, and in those five months in Paris, I completed the script. Right. Um, and um, 
Actually, I, I may actually say this at one point. Um, before I went to make that documentary, I remember I came to the office to talk to you about this because I had one of the stories, the boy who works in a chicken farm, uh, Alam. Yes, yes. I wanted to make that into a feature for my graduation film. And you sort of told me, just hold on to it and develop it further maybe, because it's just not enough for a feature. So then um, I, I, it grew from that. It was originally supposed to be just one story about uh, the boy who works in a chicken farm and it grew into different stories. What you, the final thing you see is six uh, Four stories. But there were six. I, I shot six. I actually shot six. I mean, when I, when so I, there's the fisherman, uh, which isn't there. Yeah, there's, a boy, there's an illegal fisherman story that's been cut out entirely. And there's an, a, a, a social club for elderly men who want to go to the sea. That's been cut out as well entirely, even though I shot them all. Right. Um, in the editing, I um, cut them out. Right. But when I developed the script and everything was written, and I shot it right. in that way. Go back, because there's people who are interested in the, in the Cannes Cinefondation in the, in the, in the, in Residence system, because lots of people here are going to probably apply to that uh, at some point in their lives. Um, and they should. Uh, so, so, so what happens is um, you apply and you've got a feature project that you want to develop. Yeah, yeah. And then, um, in your case, you get, you get interviewed in Paris by Georges Goldenstern and, and, nine, uh, and a panel of yeah. people. And then you spend six months or five n- months. nine months? Five months. Five months. Uh, living in Luxury in the Rue de Rivoli. Uh, no, in the Rue de Martyr in Pigalle. Yeah, but it's it's yeah, you live in the most insane apartment you'll ever see in your life, and it's. Um, I think yeah, uh, I, I think everyone should apply, um, <laughs> because in the purely I mean just uh, for um, obviously it opens a lot of doors. You can't deny that because it's um, you meet a lot of you know people. You know who run the Cannes Film Festival. You meet a lot of you know French producers because they see they think whether they think correctly or not is another matter. But they think that you've gone through this filtration process, so they want to see your scripts. You know they think okay because the Cinefondation selected you, it must be a good script. So mm. we want to see your scripts. And yeah, and like Ben said, you live in this ridiculous apartment. You get paid. You have a cleaner every day, clean, making your bed. You, you go to the Louvre and the Dorsey um, when it's completely closed, and just it's just six of you going around. Um, touch the Mona Lisa no one can you know and um, so it's and and you get you know they take you to the for 10 days they invite you for the duration of the Cannes Film Festival and um, well besides all the fun stuff like that you get also you know you live with five other people who are in the same boat as you you know um, they take only people who are either on the first features or the second features in our case it was me and two others who were working on our first features and three others who had already made one feature so it was nice because you know you um you, um, I don't know if you have experience, have, probably have experienced this when you're sitting by yourself in your apartment or here or something, just writing and um, you procrastinate and you start doing things. And, you know, but where, there, you, you get this sense of guilt when you, you go to someone else's room to ask them if they want to do something and they're like, you know, frantically writing. And, and, um, <laughs> and also, and, and, and you can show stuff to them. If you, you know, if you get along with them, you can show stuff to them. And luckily, I got along with the others. And, um, and you show different drafts to them. And, you know, the ones who already made a film, you get a lot of, you know, yeah. Interesting advice from them, and um, and um, yeah, I, I, I I'm, and the, 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 when I when I came back after the five months, I did um, uh, contemplate blowing my brains out for about three months because it was just so nice being there, and you know, it's such a good place. Yeah, and to it was work. over. And it was over, you know. So, and you can only yeah. do it once. Yeah. So um, yeah. So the uh, year so that immediately after you, there was Barney Elliott, and then there was Paz. Then it was Paz and. Oliver Hermanus were both there at the same time, yeah. um, sort of the last one, but there's no one at the moment. Yeah. 
So, so, so the numbers are looking good for this luxury thing. So, you know, we hope everyone's and, going to apply. And, and, yeah, and the thing is, like, I also co- once co-produced a film with George Goldenstone, so it's a little bit of interest. Yeah, yeah who's a lovely man who speaks highly of Ben as well. But in, in, the thing is, like, when you go down for the interview as well, you know, I went uh, for one hour. There was, you know, there's a head of the head of the what do you call it interviewing committee every year changes there's a famous director who heads yeah. it and the rest are like you know European producers nine European producers and George Goldenstern and George Goldenstern is like you know like a nice grandfather you know he's, yeah. he's very sweet and everything we had Riti Pan who's a Cambodian director I don't know if you're familiar with his work but whose entire family was wiped out with the Khmer Rouge so he's in some serious stuff and, uh, and when you're sitting there you know he looks at you like what do you you don't yeah. know anything about worth, the world? You know, you're, you're, yeah. Are you worth talking to? Yeah, exactly. And so for one hour I was there, and they completely murdered me. They literally, excuse my language, put one foot here, one foot here, and crapped all over me. And I thought you know, the last fifteen minutes, I, I thought you know I have nothing to lose, so I started just you know um, I couldn't even hear myself talk anymore. I was just defending myself uncontrollably, and I have nothing to lose. Just just say anything. And then I got up and left, and George Goldenstein walked me out of the door, and I said that didn't go well, did it? And he goes, you know, go back to the hotel. It feels like a reality TV show. So you have to go yeah. back to your hotel, all 12 of you. You have your rooms in the same hotel. And from midnight onwards, they start calling you. So I'm, I walked back. I got myself uh, half a bottle of whiskey, sat in my room, and just banged myself in the head thinking, you came all this way. You made the final 12. You messed up. And I got a call from him, like George goes at 1230, saying, oh, well, congratulations. You made it too. <laughs> so, and, um, so. Well, good. I'm glad we had that story. Yeah. So... Um, and then you had a, initially you had a French producer for Frontier Blues, um, but that was very complicated. It was going to take a long time to put it together. Yeah, because because um, the way it works with um, um, funding in Europe and I suppose here um, is that um, there's several different, especially if you make a film from what's considered the developing world, which Iran is. Uh, there's different uh, European funds, such as the Fonds Sud in France, World Cinema Fund in Berlin, uh, Fonds Sudest in Switzerland, Huber Bals in Holland. And all these funds, um, there's, um, they give pretty good money, but you know, there's a lot of competition for them, and uh, it takes a long time to get an answer back from them. And my producers had budgeted the film at, I think, three times what, um, what, my, you Iranian, thought it was yeah, what my, my Iranian producer told me it would cost. And uh, so to raise that money would have taken a long time. And then, um, uh, but we went, ahead, we went ahead with it, and we were about to send off all the applications to, we've made the dossiers to send to, translate into German, English, all these things, French, and all these things. And uh, then what happened was that um, a friend of mine who was in, my, was in film school with me, Ginevra Alcan, and uh, a friend of hers came to me and they said that um, they could raise the real budget uh, through independent financiers mm. uh, if we can maintain the connections that I had through the Saint Fondation. So um, we could, you know, talk to distributors or sales agents mm. or... And Philippe Bobert, um, who's a French producer who works between Germany and France, he agreed to be a sort of consultant on the film, and uh, he would decide if he would, uh, if he would become if a co- be the sales agent, a, sa- a co-producer sales yeah. agent. Um, and he actually paid for part of the editing, and he, you know, gave us a lot of advice. And at the end, he didn't end up becoming a sales agent. Um, but that's how we made. The, and I tore up the contract with the French people, and they were nice about it. They said, "Okay," because I told them I can read, you know. Mm. And that's what we did. We went to Iran and shot it. And it's that very interesting thing because it's a bit like, I suppose, India is the other country, I think, of where the only way you can make a film is to make a 35mm film, um, um, you know, with a proper crew in a certain kind of style. Um, and the, both of the films that we've seen tonight have that quality. 
um, of that kind of quite 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 literally composition you know that everything is 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 there in full definition um, and how much did it cost to make a 35 millimeter feature film I mean in in dollars um, the, this film came out at the end um, in dollars two hundred and thirty thousand dollars I think um, but um, I must admit something but it, it could have cost far less but we shot some more stuff yeah you went back yeah, and then you reshot yeah uh, not reshot we shot extra stuff because I oh. cut two stories out in the editing and you know we needed to develop there right. so um, it could have I think we could have finished it off for about 160 or something but and and, and, a, and a large chunk of that, I mean, you could have you could keep the call. I mean, we did all the sound mix and design here in like Air Studios and Goldcrest yeah. and Dolby Digital and yeah. all those things, which cost a lot of which money. Which cost much more? Yeah, much more. I mean, if you had a regular sound mix in Tehran, well, you can't do Dolby, but yeah. um, just a regular sound mix like you see yeah. with other Iranian films, um, then it would have been much cheaper. I want some questions from the floor about the about the movie, because uh, yeah. Yeah, um, I wanted to ask how, how you went about um, writing the, obviously four, you said six, but um, four ultimate um, stories, if you kind of wrote them seg- wrote them down and wrote them individually. Um, and also I wanted to ask about the, um, uh, you've uh, referenced um, Kira's Mackie, which is very very much like the, the, the way you sort of play, and it's a really nice way to play with the, like, uh, the, the realism that you're showing us. And I wanted to ask you in particular, I guess, how, tra- um, how much experience acting your actors have um, and how, um, how you found or you, the, the directing style of kind of telling people who maybe don't quite understand exactly what it is you're trying to do or maybe you show them Kiyosmaki films or something to say this will look good but it's quite plain and it's you know, try, always trying to strip it back maybe if that's how, you, how, how to achieve that kind of thing you're directing in that style so yeah um. Yeah, first question. I um, w- when I was writing, I, um, I I I mean, always I've only made one film, but I'm, I <laughs> when I write, I, I I write by hand, and then I type it out. So I don't, I'm not, I don't sit in the computer, and I always come just have the just scenes first, and then I put them around uh, to make the script. That's why when you, I I suppose when you have different stories, that's how, and it jumps from one to the other. That's how you do it. And also in the editing, you can rearrange and rearrange if continuity allows. Um, but um, so when I wrote um, like I said I, the, the story of the boy in the chicken farm who falls in love with a girl was the first original story I had then the story of the, minst- the, the minstrel um, came into my head um, and uh, and then from then on it was just a case of like just having um, I don't know uh, when you place when I started placing it down in, um, in, in I suppose in a chronological order how I could keep uh, a sense of atmosphere and also not be too confusing and, and the biggest problem I had was that thing where I showed it to people and they'd say this is just a bit too confusing um, and in, when people saw the first cut with six stories they said you know it's really confusing because you know you're just jumping from one story to the other and you know we're not getting a sense of uh, any development of the characters you're just jumping it's uh, just one constant 90 like you know it was actually 110 minutes at the time 110 minute like montage sequence where you're just going from story to story and uh, so I still had that problem even after I finished the script and I went into, actually sh- I shot the film and in, all, th- all through editing. But, when, but just the way I tried to do it during the writing was just for, I had formulated scenes in my head, I wrote them down, and then it was just like a puzzle, just trying to you know, cut and paste, cut and paste to see which on paper gives you the best, um, just this, this sense of atmosphere that you wanted to create. And if it answers that first question. Um, the second question, all the actors are non-professional. Um, there are... Uh, all local except the girl who's, who 
who's not local. Um, who you met? <laughs> um, she's she, an actress. No, no, no. She's not. She's not actress. Just, yeah, she's just very pretty. But she's yeah. <laughs> she, she she's never acted before. Um, and she's an old friend of mine from when she was little. Um, uh, I too was little at the time. But the the, the what was I saying? Yeah. So they're all non-professionals. They never acted before. A lot of them were illiterate. So I, you know, the script like. Um, but I was used to because Haydar, everyone in Haydar was illiterate, um, and and I didn't have a script for Haydar really. I just had one page, um, um, which I expanded on. But um, but during this film, though some were illiterate, so, uh, so the script was absolutely no use to them. And uh, some of them, obviously, a lot of them had seen films, and the films they had watched were completely different to this film. So when they st- we did tests with on video with a lot of people, you know, we had the different casting sessions and. For example, for the minstrel, you know, about ten musicians came to try and everything. <laughs> and uh, f- the boy who plays Hassan with the glasses, and um, he had watched a lot of films, I think, because when we did their first read through, he was very overdramatic. Like, um, why, why would I do that? He was just really over the top. And uh, uh, the way we, uh, we d- I didn't show them anything, like uh, like you said, Karis or anything like that. I didn't have any on me, but I didn't show them anything. It was just completely getting them to. Uh, pretend that he's essentially at school because he could read and write and he's reading from a book just how would you read it if you're reading a sentence how would you read it and then we just kept on practicing with him until he was just completely stripped away from any form of emotion um, and uh, some people like the minstrel for example he's an anal- he, besides being a, a very great mus- musician how he earns his living is he announces horse racing so he's like number three, blah, 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 that kind of stuff. So he's used to like you know speaking uh, in front of crowds and <laughs> having a thing going. So um, you know the scene where he's sitting. In the way he really is a performer. Isn't yeah, he's. It? A I performer. mean, he's got a self-conscious style of performance. Exactly. Yeah. And the three, you know, the scene you saw, which was three in, in the back of the tractor, where he's t- telling the story about his wife being stolen. That was you know one shot, three and a half minutes long. Originally, and, and Ben remembers from the script, that was supposed to open the film, and that we shot a, a nine and a half minute single take version of that. In which he tells an elaborate story about how his the green Mercedes yeah, is coming down the hill. A bandit stole, you know, some bandit, you know, um, had nineteen children, and one of the nineteen children um, was um, um, was one of the people was became a shepherd because his grandfather, who was a band legend bandit, drowned in the Caspian. It was a real elaborate story, and nine and a half minutes, you know. Uh, we ordered special film, you know, to get this done, and you, we couldn't really mess it up, really, because you know. And he nailed it in one thing. Nine and a half minutes, he was like telling his stories, and he he sings as well at the end of that one. So, but um, <coughs> almost everyone I showed it to says you have absolutely. I mean, you cannot start a film with a nine and a half minute shot in your first <laughs> feature film. So, um, um, I, I did, uh, so I I had a I did a three and a half minute version of that as well. Brian. Question about the the script, Barak. Um, it seems to be a, a film about people n- not getting what they want, you know, like American films. Well, you know, eventually, uh, or, or like Kafka said, there is hope, but not for us. I mean, it it does feel unremittingly, you know, this is the idiocy of rural life. This is a, a place I would, you know, it's a kind of nightmare. It, it feels, and the only person who gets anything is the guy who gets the white shoes. But everyone's losing things, losing their wife, losing their followers, losing the girl. And he's the only guy who gets... I mean, I'm sure this wasn't self-conscious, but could you say something about your attitude to these people and what you were saying mm. about that place and that world? Because I'm sure 
the reality of that place bustling about, people moving about, not framed like that in beautiful compositions, would be quite different. Yeah, so yeah. it's a very stylized reality. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So could you say something? And it begins yeah. with the script. Yeah. So could you say something about yeah, that? Yeah, uh, completely true. I mean, um, I must at this, uh, at this point say that um, this is not supposed to be a reflection of um, um, everyone. I mean, everyone's everyday existence in that region, you know, because I'm from there. Most of my family still lives there, and they function, and they live, and they have... Um, Except my uncle, who's the guy who gets the white shoes, he's my real uncle. He's my da- he's my mom's brother, um, you know. <laughs> and, and you know, and he's had uh, he's owned about not at the same time, but in the past thirty years, he's owned about ten, eleven different clothing stores, and um, he simply couldn't sell clothes, you know. And because in, in Tehran, you know, now more so, I guess you can go and get try, have different sizes. But in his store, every time you went there, you know, if you were a size thirty, one size, you, you know, you come out. It's, it's just every. It's but his performance clothes. is the most uninflected in the whole film. It's almost impossible <laughs> yeah. to watch him yeah. selling a jumper yeah. because it just goes on, and you yeah. think there's going to be absolutely nothing. Yeah, so but, I mean, exactly. And so people you know, just went in and came out with ill-fitting clothes because you, you don't have the option of choice. But um, um, but yes, this is stylized and um, consciously, um, I. Um, I wanted to tell a story. I mean, it's such a story about men. Yeah, you know, it's about men and absent, desperate men, absent women. Essentially, you know, everyone, ha- each of the four characters, male characters, has uh, are affected in a way by either the absence of women, whether because they're stolen or ran away or something, uh, or an object of you know unrequited love, you know, some object of desire that they can't have, and. Uh, <coughs> and I, if purely for a sense of, um, um, how should I say, creating uh, an atmospheric thing where these people are going through this sense that yeah they have no, there is no hope but they're just going on with. It. But I mean I, I wouldn't say it's hopeless though. I don't. I hope that I didn't. I never meant it to come across as because you, we, we know they still carry on. You know what I mean? The tomo- when the film ends, I don't know. Possibly something else. Um, he goes back after the girl again. I don't know. I mean, I probably would because I'm obsessive, so I probably wouldn't give up on the parents saying no, so I'd probably get on my bike, motorcycle and go out after her as well. So um, so it's... it's um, th- but, but having said the fact that you know, people live normal lives up there as well, I always did get the sense of the area when I f- lived there or when I visited. And when I, when I started writing the script was when my grandfather was passing away. And there was this sense of overriding melancholy there about this area that was just kind of forgotten about. Because there was, you know, that the guy says on the track, you know, they made us so many promises. And, and it was because it was seen as this form of, you know, gateway into Europe in a lot of ways. The Caspian Sea's there, the former, you know, uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed, there was, you know, gateway into Europe perhaps some way. And it has everything, you know, it has mountains, it has a desert, it has a sea, it has, you know, lush landscape, it's, it's huge farming industries there. And um, and although there's still there's a lot of wealthy people living there through farming, it, it, it there is amongst people, and it's quite, it's not very easy to get to from Tehran. It's not the easiest place to get to from. You can fly now, but you know, I don't know if you want to get an internal flights in Iran. But <laughs> going through the road, it's a mountainous road, and it's so unless you are from there, you didn't really go there that often. And so it was this sense of a forgotten place, and perhaps it was accentuated when I was there at the time when I the, sto- the ideas came to my head. Like I said, because my it was a bleak time. My grandfather was. You know, um, fading away fast, and I just had this uh, over, yeah, this sense of um, um, melancholy that I just felt there, and uh, that's the end of the story. But, but in the end, you must have made a conscious decision not not to give 
give them anything really uh, until and just to leave them hanging like yeah and, yes you know yeah. and that that delivers a certain feeling yeah rather straightforward question you mentioned a lot about editing out segments of the film and stuff so I was just wondering what the uh, working relationship with the editor was like overall I, I was the editor oh so you <laughs> uh, um, I um well, no, I, 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 I started editing, when I shot the six stories, I started editing with uh, an editor in Iran. And um, it didn't really work out. And then I went to Berlin with Philippe Baubert, and he got another editor. And that also didn't really work out. And that second editor ended up becoming the music composer for the film. Um, and uh, then, who also met in the local? Yeah. yeah. And then, um, uh, then I came back to London, and uh, I edited from scratch myself. So I'm... I'm I got along pretty well for myself. But it was get, getting to the point of deciding not to have six stories but having four yeah. was what opened up the edit, really. Yeah. yeah. And I think with, and with the editing, just going back to... Um, I'm sorry, I forgot your name, but, but I don't know your name. I just never said it. But, um, <laughs> the gentleman here, the first question uh, was how... Um, um, when I was mentioning that I used to like a puzzle and you were I was arranging and rearranging things, in the editing, that's what you know took the longest time was because... Um, um, you could essentially. I, 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 there were so many different possibilities because um, of these different stories, and um, not much of a continuity issue actually. So I could have rearranged and rearranged forever. There were so many ways of looking at the material. I remember seeing it when I was actually in South Africa, and I had a DVD, and I and, and looking at a cut, which was the last cut before you started recutting it, and sending a note saying, "Well, actually, in some ways, the photographer's work." could be the key to the whole edit because you could actually look at some of the stuff on the chicken farm as though it's got that formal quality that you're looking down on a chicken or whatever as though it's in a photograph and so that commentary by the by the guy who's talking about what typical images you have of the area could actually take you through the whole movie which was a kind of a very crude kind of you know, executive producer's kind of idea of like, how can you hold this together and make everyone feel it's very slick, um, which, which didn't help at all. But it, but but you could see that it was a film where uh, Babak had got a really powerful sense of what he wanted to say about the place, but how the how the connections between each one of the bits was going to work was still quite puzzling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very confusing. Um, but now having seen it twice since then, I. I feel that there's, 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 it's an amazing privilege when you see a film where you feel that you've been to a place or you feel that you've been sort of, you know, very, very close to it, which is very unusual in a film. Um, which you'd only get with that quite random kind of, yeah. Yes. Um, when you acquire such a specific style of directing... And, and framing things and sort of this kind of story. Is there a sort of, is there a sense of being trapped by that? Do you feel like yeah, you could not yeah. do anything else because that has become so specific to your style? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, uh, even, well, I, uh, even to just concentrate on Frontier Blues, like I said, I made certain decisions that I was going to shoot it in static shots, you know, even... In a sh uh, when he's on a motorcycle and things like that, you know, the car moves, but the camera never pans or tilts or anything. It's always the camera's always steady, st static. And I had that decision in my head that I wanted to do that. So your hands are are tied in a lot of ways when you're deciding um, on um, on when you're writing it, 
because I made that decision before I started writing almost, um, that I would do that. So when I was writing, I, I kept on thinking, um, what, would it be possible to even pull off this um, scene, um, shot slash scene in one shot? And uh, so, um, so yeah, that, that, that made it a bit more complicated. And also now when I'm writing another script, I... Um, I'm having some, I'm also my short film was the same. It was just static shots. Even my first turn film was was a static yeah. shot. Um, and uh, so then we we'll show that later. So the, so now <laughs> I, um, when I'm writing now, um, whether I I want to be making this type of film forever, no, probably not. I mean I I have this uh, filled with reckless desires of panning in my next film, and <laughs> and 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 it just kind of does. Um, yeah, it, it does. It, it does make you feel like when you're writing, it perhaps you know you're not really concentrating on actually the story, and you're just thinking style, 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 style. And that's especially now with the second script, I'm feeling that you know I, I, I start having an idea, and I really like it as a just a way to, to progress a story. But then I think about how I would shoot it, and it kind of inhibits me. And I think and that's wrong. I think it's very bad because you, you kind of neglect this development of a story. What's very interesting though and we were just having a conversation now, we were having a drink while you were watching the film and I think that one thing that is very interesting is to have the freedom um, to to really take these things at full value, to, to make the films that you've made um, so when when Babak has a big camera movement in his films, it'll be absolutely on the basis of having really deserved that camera movement in a way you know, you know what I mean, because I think, I think the whole thing of of not making films which are quite quite stylistically um, um, uh, um, predetermined, and then suddenly jumping into a, a, into a style which is sort of borrowed from lots of compromises which you feel ought to be the right compromises is very difficult artistically if you've got a very strong sense of form. And I think that one of the problems with um, let's call it the producer's cinema that you get in countries where you're not really allowed to do these films. I mean, this film is a kind of an art work film in a lot of ways although it's got distribution in a lot of major territories and therefore it's 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 a profitable commercial enterprise is is that is that you don't go through all of those stages i remember doing patrick keeler's first film london um uh, or his first feature-length film and his third one is in the london film festival um so he's been doing these robinson films i remember him he had a year with a wind-up 35 millimeter newsreel camera to make this this film of these journeys around london with just him and his and and and, and his wife julie and and he rang me one day and said ben it's really exciting we had a camera movement today and i said i can't believe it you can't make a camera movement and he said well it wasn't really a camera movement i said well what do you mean he said well we were in a shopping center and we put the tripod on an escalator and the camera moved and I said well it's very exciting I'm really dying to see it and that was the only camera movement in Patrick Keeler's career so far who'd made four shorts and a feature um, and, and, and although it's bizarre and absurd and kind of jokey in a way I think it's also very important to think people thinking about how they understand what the potentiality of cinema is as, 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 uh, uh, as a machinery to, for all of your all, all, all of your most restrictive thoughts about how to explore it to be taken at full value because the journey is your journey it's not everybody else's journey you have to take that yourself I think, uh, yeah, and just to elaborate on that point I think um, a film actually that Ben recommended I watch which I did a few years ago um, uh, which is a Chris Marker film uh, Son Soleil and I think, it's, it's, I think it's in that where they said that the worst thing they teach you in film school is no one should look into the camera right and um, <laughs> 
because it wasn't that time, wasn't it? Because like, yeah, the, some woman goes, the, yeah. the, the voiceover says, you know, the worst thing they teach you in film school is no one should look into the camera. I remember um, I, I have no eloquent um, way of explaining why. For example, in, in my first term film as well, someone looked into the camera. I remember I, I was sitting up here and I showed the film. And I'm sure <laughs> a lot of you have, have had end of term screenings which are quite brutal affairs. And I was, I was sitting up here and I showed this trip to the coast. And um, I won't name names, he's not a teacher here, uh, but he was one of the people who came to discuss, I mean, directing. And uh, in this film, I had you know, someone looking into the camera and he was utterly insulted, like you know, I, I, was, I had committed a serious crime. And, so this, uh, and he went off and um, it was telling me how it completely put him off the rest of the film because he felt completely detached from the characters when they looked at him and he couldn't observe them as uh, people uh, in a film and he thought they, were, they could have been a member of the audience then because he, they looked at him, they interacted with him. And uh, every single film I made since then, someone looked into the camera. And uh, in this one, people talk into the camera. And for me, it, it, no, it wasn't a, you know, a, a sense of saying, oh, well, I'm going to show that guy. So, you know. No, it wasn't that. <laughs> it, it, was, it, it was more this thing that um, in the instances that I have seen it happen in cinema, I did not agree with that gentleman who said, um, I feel a detachment when I see someone. Look. I actually feel a far more closer attachment to someone when I see them look at me in, the, in, in, the, in, a, in a film. You know? and, uh, and like Ben said, you know, um, the idea of if you... Tr- Actually, I'm not going to carry on talking in this way because it would seem like I'm telling you to do this and do that because I sh- I'm, I'm absolutely no place to do that. But, uh, but I, you know, I went to this school for three years and I, you know, I wouldn't change that for the world. I think you know, it, if I, um, I, I was one of those people who needed to go to film school. I needed to have a film education to make films. Otherwise, I would never have done it. I know some people say you don't need to go to film school and you can just make films. I needed a structure of a film school to go there and you know, make films and fuck up and learn from them. You know, I, besides my graduation film, I don't ever want to see another film I made in the school. I hope <laughs> no one gets to see them because, um, except my first term film. But, you know, I made four, <laughs> four films here before my graduation film and second, third, and fourth term film, absolutely terrible. Oh, horrific, horrific. I'm not saying these are great, but they, they were absolutely horrific. And, but I think you go to film school to make those mistakes and you learn certain things and I think... Um, as you know, Brian, Ben, and Alan, and Barry, and everyone else will tell it will will probably if you sit up here and I could completely mass murder you at the end of each term about things uh, that you've done and you haven't done. But I think if you certain things you absolutely believe in, I think you should go on doing it. You should go, you should you should definitely go on doing it. Otherwise, um, you know, you'll be just like the rest. There you are. Good. <laughs> That's a very important statement. Alan, up there at the back. Hi. Um, you mentioned the absence of women when you were talking about the, the thing, and there is the recurring motif of, um, of female characters who have sort of run away or been stolen, and I'm not, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to understand by being stolen exactly. And this is probably my ignorance, uh, but it's my understanding that in Iran it's not that easy for a woman to leave a man necessarily. Now, this isn't the part of Iran that I've heard of, uh, so it would be interesting for me if you could talk a little bit about the background of that because I think I'm, I'm missing a few of the pieces. Yeah, hence stolen. If she could leave, you know, she leave. It, it, it was a mutual thing. Like you know, he would come at night and steal her, and they wouldn't have to go through the whole protocol of oh, I want to leave. Um, uh, yes, it is difficult for a woman to leave a man in Iran. Um, 
I think a lot of things have changed in Tokyo in um, in Tokyo in, uh, in the in that area. Um, um, a lot of these, like you know, the photographers coming to take these cliched photographs of you know, Turkmen don't really go, will go around dressed like you know with their Cossack hats anymore, and you know, um, uh, they don't do knife dances in the street anymore. You know, they don't, they don't live in yurts; they live in buildings. You know, they drive cars and all these things. Um, and I think you know, people should accept that as you know, that um, uh, they have uh, they're getting on with stuff, and they decide to you know live this kind of existence. One uh, thing about um, their traditions and, um, well, not so much a tradition, but a regular occurrence that used to be, I mean, much more regular, was this idea of stealing a woman. Because I think that's absolutely romantic to steal a woman. If, um, uh, if, I, if I was, I really do think it's the most romantic thing one person can do. I'm, I, of course, with the woman's consent. I'm not saying, you know, uh, <laughs> just go around um, the streets and like, you know, grab a woman and go. But if it's, like, if it's done out of something like love and things like that, I, I absolutely think it's the most romantic thing in my mind that, uh, that someone can do. I wish I was in a situation where that could one day happen to me, that I could steal. But, and I put it in this story because... Uh, it's um, especially across uh, cross ethnic relationships. It is an occurrence that um, happens far less regularly now, but still occasionally happens. I, we uh, family friends of ours, we know, who have um, been <coughs> stolen by man, and you know, and families like got angry at each other and all those things. But um, so it's an occurrence that uh, it's not very regular anymore, but it still happens. And um, as far as um, Hassan's mother leaving. I never specified whether there was a man involved, like the father, you know, so I, I never said that she um, went to Paris and left her man. And the, for all we know, the Hassan's father could be dead. I left that open. I never, you know, uh, no, I so my father died. So he, the father's <laughs> dead, sorry. <laughs> that point, yeah. The father's dead. So she, that's something that confused that. The father's dead, so there was no one. She left, you know, so I never brought that question of the disputes of whether a woman can legally or in any way leave. Um, it's a question I really hate to ask, but um, a challenge for a film like yours would probably be like if you don't have funding and you're still applying with your script, maybe it would be marketability if you're going to production companies. Have you had this problem since you graduated? Like, was this a challenge? Um, have I had problems getting... Yeah, because, for example, if you're applying for funding from production companies, the first question will be the mar how can they distribute it, of can course, they make yeah. money out of it, and all that. So although I really enjoyed your film, I was wondering if, this is, if it's marketable, if it's attractive to production companies in general. Um, I mean, when, when we made the film, then we got distribution in the territories we did. For example, Artificial Eye here in England picked it up for distribution. It was um, after we had finished it and we showed it in a couple of festivals, they saw it in... Um, yeah, Locarno, the first festival we premiered in. Um, they saw it there and they, you know, we discussed it with them and um, took a few months, but then they agreed to take it on. And same with like, you know, Austria, Switzerland, wherever, it's been distribution. But when originally I, we, you know, I wrote the script and I, um, I never looked for funding in England because I knew that was just a waste, would be a waste of time. Um, I discussed it actually with, with a production company um, after Heida when I told them what idea I had. And I, t I pitched the idea to them, and they, you know, they made suggestions and uh, things. We just became obvious that they wouldn't be involved. They couldn't be involved. So because perhaps it wasn't marketable in this country, but um, yeah, of course, I mean, if, if you're making a film like this, it's not going to, it's not, uh, it's not going to be a um, attractive um, option for a, you know, a production company to take on because 
to, if they will ever see the money. Hence, my French production company was looking at uh, government funds. You know that a lot of them, some of them wanted their money back in like percentage or, some, or, or something of sales, but others were just literally like funds. You take it, go spend. Um, such as you know the Hebrew Bells Fund or, or things like that. But I think you do rely uh, re- the main source of inc- um, funding for these type of films are those kind of um, um, foundations and funds that exist in Europe um, for films from the developing countries. I mean, lots of the funds, the kind of funds that Babak is talking about, are controlled by festivals now. Since since who Bells, who used to run the Rotterdam Film Festival, created the fund, which was to help filmmakers from the south in pretty underdeveloped film industries with very, very very little local money and broadcasting money to get films made, but also in countries where to make a feature film costs you know, less than $100,000. Um, it's sort of made in a huge difference. And, and in some ways it's interesting that if you're working in those territories, these things are possible. So two producers who are in London who've been doing this kind of work for years, um, which is Keith Griffiths and, 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 and Simon Field, actually won the... Palm Door in Cannes with Uncle Boon Me, the film which is by a, a director from uh, from um, Thailand. Thailand. Um, but of course, none of the trades wrote about the fact that two British producers had made. It wasn't even a co-production; it's a British production. They'd won the Palm Door with uh, you know a, a very culturally you know, uh, you know very complex and 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 rather extraordinary postmodern. A concoction of a film that was in the Cannes Film Festival because as far as they were concerned it was a foreign language film from Thailand so it was nothing to do with anybody else so they're important those funds and the Swiss one and then the, the, the Berlin Film Festival's got one which is bigger now than the Hubal's fund and they are important and significant if you're working in those in those places and then there's a kind of against that there's the Anglo-Saxon pressure um, to do all kinds of other things um, I th- and I think going back to the whole Sinofundation thing we talked about, you know, there's residencies such as the Binger in Holland or the Cannes residency, or the, I mean, the Sundance Film Lab, but it's different. Um, I think those kind of things, they, um, they, in that way, they also open some doors as well because it's purely out of connection, contacts that you do make um, that, um, that make the whole process less daunting. If I, may. I mean, I'm not saying you're guaranteed to get the funds because you're not. Time, you know, um, uh, statistics have proved that you know it's not a guarantee if you if you go to Sinfonia and your film shows in Cannes. It's not a guarantee that if you go to Binger, your film screens in Rotterdam. You know, and, and that kind of stuff is not, no, there's no guarantees on that. But it just makes things a bit less daunting because you just feel you know how to go about it and you know how um, um, how who can possibly support you to go about that. If that if that makes sense, I don't know if I'm talking rubbish. But. No, you're not talking rubbish. Um, a bit of a tag on to that question I was just wondering um, if who you perceive your your kind of audience to be if that's ever consideration um, and if that changes through your process just listening to you it sounds like maybe you you write for an audience of yourself but then by by the time you get to editing you're considering a wider audience does that change for you through the process and who who do you think your audience is I think I I mean um, yeah what you said like an audience of me that's pretty much um, how it's, yeah, essentially how it starts. But of course, when you're editing, um, like uh, the nine and a half minute shot um, to open this film, you know, <laughs> you, you hear people say, you know, just, you cannot possibly do this, you know, and you start thinking, you know, they don't think about it, just just yourself because you know, yes, do I think now I wish I still had that shot in there? Yes, I do, but um, I know 
I'm quite convinced Artificial Life, for example, would never have picked up that film. You know, I'm quite convinced, you know, that my Swiss distributor wouldn't have picked up that film. Um, and, uh, but, but uh, yeah, in an arrogant way, yeah, you write, I write. That's something that I, I, um, I like, and I think um, if I saw it in a film, I would also appreciate and like, and hope others will as well. I hope they do. I mean, I, 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 don't, like, you know, I don't write and think, oh, if they don't, screw them. <coughs> uh, um, I really hope they do as well. But, I, but essentially, I, I just do it from the pit of my heart. So. I'm going to take a couple more questions, and then we're going to have a drink. Yes. Um, hi. Can you um, tell me a bit about how you went about selling the film? Um, yes. Um, <coughs> um, well, <coughs> well, the film premiered in Locarno last year. And we met with sales agents, and um, the big ones such as you know Celluloid Dreams or um, MK2 and Wild Bunch, they very honestly told us that. Um, thank you for coming, Brian. <laughs> 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 Thanks. Thanks. Um, the um, they they very openly told us you know we uh, if we got a, took a film like this on you know we have we're trying to sell Hanukkah's film we're trying to sell Von Trier's film. Uh, was trying to sell in a Ho Xiao Shen's film. Uh, your film will probably, if we take it on, we bottom of that pile. So we would go to distributors in England or Germany and say, hey, we got Hanukkah's film, we got this guy's film, that guy's film, and also this guy's film. We'll, maybe we'll put that in a package to sell those films together in a ter certain territory. And uh, if you're lucky, you'll get like a week in some, you know, for example, in Germany, some you know, tiny cinema in Berlin. Um, Whereas, uh, or we would, uh, you know, we would first try to force those bigger films off because there's no money for them to do that. You know, Hanukkah's films are going to make much more money than this, for example, Von Trier's films, likewise. And then they suggested uh, that we try to negotiate with distributors directly ourselves, i.e., the production company, and that's what we did. You know, um, some certain production distributors, like the Swiss distributors, got in touch themselves. They saw the film in Locarno and they picked it up in Locarno. Um, Austrian, they saw it in another festival, they picked it up. Uh, artificial ISO and Locarno, then we discussed it with them. I mean, just like, so basically, um, and other places like France and the States, which we're discussing with now, not, you know, not, uh, and we haven't got distribution there yet, is that, um, like, contacting them directly, which is what we did, for example, with US distributors who are now seeing the film. It was us just going and saying, we don't have a sales agent. Um, but but how, how do you pick your distributors? Like, how do you decide which ones to contact? Um, well, I'm not, you know, you can't be too picky. <laughs> but, like, you know, I don't want to take IFC because... Uh, but they, um, how do we, like, how do you know about them? How do you hear about them? Yeah, this, the list is so long. Oh, there, there is, so yes. so many but of them. And how yeah. do you decide which ones there are is. good and um, which ones are worth your while? And um, just uh, by asking people of different producers and sales agents. Like, you know, I asked people in Match Factory, for example, who the best people I knew from the distribution, from that sales agents, who are the distribution companies they work with, or just... Like fast forward a DVD and see a DVD like and fast forward and see what it says on it you know yeah. and others you know by name like artificial light you know you just know about it and I know um, IFC in America you just know about it and a, lo a lot of the time the cultural festivals I mean the big grade A festivals and of which Locarno is one kind of create a certain they draw in a certain group of people so those those kind of distributors might well be at least either they'll be in Locarno or they'll be reading the Locarno program and looking to see what's there. Um, so because Locarno last year was interesting, I, I was there for a couple of days doing something, but there, there, was, a, there, was, there was this film and there was um, 
um, Shirley. Shirley Adams, which which is Olive Hermanus's film. So I was sort of trying to make stand in the middle of the street and say the London Film School's got two films in competition. Um, 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 but you, but but Locarno is the kind of festival where um, a certain number of smaller uh, um, uh, independent distributors will send one person to scout and they'll make a list of four or five movies and that those movies will then turn up in lots of smaller festivals over the next six months but it, it, it will be a, a moment in which it sort of splashes and then you know people will know about it from from that. The difficulty when you've got to look for every distributor in the world, if you don't have a sales agent, is if you're not in a grade A festival, if you're in a showcase festival of some smaller kind, and then suddenly you find that actually nobody's ever read your name in a catalogue. So you really are going from scratch, which is a different situation from this film, in a way. And you also know, like some territories, you know, like Slovakia would never pick up this film, for example. You know, so there's certain territories. You know, um, like I was telling Ben the other day. You know, we got picked up by Artificial Eye in England. We still don't have a French distributor, and it's also almost an unwritten rule that if you make a film, any film, you'll at least get one week in Paris. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because you just distribute everything in France. <laughs> so uh, you know, well, you at least get one week in some cinema in France. It's true. There's double the number of specialist films. Yeah. On any given day. Exactly. Whether anyone sees them or not is not, not another matter. But just you get a one week run. But but so you know so certain like you know the states uh, France England Germany and you know possibly Scandinavian countries and some type some places in the Far East. Besides that, with this type of film, I think you're kind of wasting your time to go looking for it. You know. But the interesting thing is to look five years ahead, and you say the way. You, I mean, one of the things you have to adjust when you go in in the context of looking at broadly all the film cultures of the world is the way you use the word commercial and make sure that you use it in a way which is absolutely economic and absolutely about rentability. Because actually, if you spend £200,000 making, m- making this film, um, it's not intuitively, you don't think, oh, that's the most commercial thing anyone has ever done. Um, it, you know, it's got a number of narratives which are stranded together, it's got no known actors, it's shot in Turkmenistan and so on. But if you take the same $200,000 and you... Um, shoot a film with a few former stars of a television uh, series with a rather a badly staged car crash because you haven't really got much resources and uh, you know a script which is very ingratiating but doesn't actually work entirely um, and 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 then you you try and you know build it up as a commercial film within a particular country because it's a kind of local comedy or whatever the results five years down the line are generally that you've lost more of your two hundred thousand dollars than if you've played a specialist movie by a filmmaker of very specific and distinctive style in an international art house festival. So in the end you're obliged because we have to deal with things which are facts to call this film more commercial than that one and not to use the word commercial to mean insults the intelligence and is fairly middle of the road which is how people usually use the word commercial. So um, that, that's what's interesting is that once you begin to have a career for it and I'm sure that uh, in all probability uh, what Babak is doing is also exploring all kinds of, th- of, of ways of making films and probably his next film will have much more of a singular linear narrative and probably be accessible to a slightly w- wider audience of distributors. I don't say audiences but distributors. Um, but the reality is five, ten years down the line um, um, for that kind of money the question about different levels of film is all about price it's not actually about it's not, and, and it's what you get for the price it's actually not at all about whether somebody has an intention to have a large audience most people with an intention to have a large audience who make a very cheap film have an audience whatever 
Yeah. Hi. Um, can I ask you, you said that you went through the, the very brutal interview. What sort of questions were they putting to you? I mean, you had the, the product, so I don't understand. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, brutal meaning that I thought they despised the product. And what were they questioning, for um, example, that you... The, I mean, they... What, what I sent them was Hader, uh, my short film. Um, I didn't send anything else. Uh, and uh, a draft of the script, uh, essentially. And um, from the draft, you know, they, they were asking questions about, you know, they were saying it's too much repetition. Um, why should they be used? And, and there was far more repetition in the script than it was, even though the film had repetition too. Uh, the actual script had far more. And, you know, they didn't uh, agree why there they should be some repetition, in, so much repetition in there. And... Um, um, I don't even remember that well. Some of them said they couldn't, you know, relate to any of the characters, and um, it, they were just very critical of the, the script. So, so the but critique helped you, for example, in the second script, or did you take anything on board, or um, is it still your style? I mean, they yeah. haven't changed you, really. No. Okay. No, I mean, because the thing was, uh, later I heard they, that's what they do. They did that with every all the other eleven people mm -hmm. on that thing, you mm -hmm. know. You know, and not one. Uh, you know, afterwards, when we found out who got in, who didn't, and we get, became friends, we asked him, "How was your interview?" And everyone said we just thought the same. Yeah, it's just Treatment. it was a nightmare, and um, no one said you know they loved it and everything was great. And so they just wanted to see, I guess you know, um, what you mean by this or by that. And so the other five people that were with you, mm. how different were your f films? Um, well, we had a guy from Argentina called Alexis dos Santos. Mm -hmm. He made glue and unmade beds. I don't know if you've seen those. Ami Beds was made in England. Um, Antonio Campos, he, from America, he made uh, After School. Fintroch, uh, who's a Belgian girl, she's made uh, Unspoken and Someone Else's Happiness. Sebastian Lelio from Chile, Navidad. I forgot what his other film was called. But um, yeah, we were, we were quite, quite different in um, uh, stylistically. And, and does it change, do you think, year by year? Are they looking for different styles? Do very you think? Good yeah, it's a really good question. I, I, I don't know. I think because mm -hmm. when, we when we were there, like I said, all the six projects were um, really different. Um, so I, I wouldn't say they chose a particular type of filmmakers to participate together. Um, and also, and, but, but also we weren't... Com um, I know of other sessions where there, were, there have been you know, Filipino directors who make seven-hour films. And um, the, the guy who made um, 1408 East of Bucharest, and he's made Police Adjective now. Um, yeah. Yeah, you know, they were in the same session. It's just, so it's, it is sometimes different. Um, I, I don't think there is a particular... Um, um, I don't know, like th three of the people who were with me in that session had been rejected the previous year. You know, so um, they, they claimed that... Uh, they, they made it to the interview stage, but, you know... Um, Bruno Dumont was the head of the, the panel the previous year. It's pretty tough. Yeah. yeah so, uh, <laughs> so they blamed Bruno Dumont, saying like you know he just didn't get it. <laughs> so, and um, I should say that we're going to try and feature people from all of these things in the next year because the London Film School has now got um, something which is called Hot House, which is a kind of version of uh, well, there's the Binger, which is an institution in Amsterdam that you know gives five months for you to concentrate very hard on working with a group of people developing a project and there's the Cannes Residence, there's the Sundance Workshops, there's another thing in Berlin that we sort of have something to do with so there are five, four or five on earth and there are a few others but we're sort of trying to, we're joining this club in the sense of trying to steal the best of them and that's what, if you ever hear about um, uh, uh, Hot House which at the moment has got uh, I think eight projects um, from the UK which are, which are being uh, um, hot housed and looked after by 
filmmakers, two of them are graduates of London Film School, but then the other six are people who are independent filmmakers in the UK who are being supported by the unit. Um, it's, it's, it's a bit, it's a, it's a version of this. I don't know if the interviewing is quite so tough, yeah. but it's a version of that. So we'll, we'll try and feature the outcome of all of those. And unless you, sorry, I'm just unless you ask, you know, you don't get an answer. Do you know what I mean? So there's, there's a lot of people I know who say, no, I, I, I don't want to apply, that, I don't, that I, I, it won't happen, all those things. You know, the worst is a no. That's it. Do you know what I mean? So, <laughs> no, I mean, when I, when I sent my application to Sivarasan, I swear to God, um, or whatever, that I, uh, I completely forgot that I sent the application until I got a letter saying we would like you to come down to the interview. So I had no expectations of anything like that. I sent it to DHL the last day before the deadline. And all those things, because you know, the whole thing was, it's just a no, and you can send again the next session and the next session. There's no rule saying you can't apply. And no one's going to say, okay, what an idiot, applied four times. You know? it, 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 it literally says you have nothing to lose. You know, so. yeah. I'm going to take one more question, because there's one over there, and then we're going to enjoy some <laughs> delicious cheap red wine together. Uh, I'm just wondering, as a, a director that has such a distinctive style, as your career grows, you might find that uh, your reputation grows as well, and you might start to get uh, offers that become more and more mainstream. Let's say uh, studio films. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that, if you're willing to embrace that or you want to stay within a certain <laughs> field. Uh, um, a good question. Yeah, it's a very good question. I, um, if I have to encounter many more years, financial Years, financial situation, years of financial situations <laughs> that I've encountered the past two years, you know, I'd you do anything? <laughs> I'd sell my soul to anything. But I, I would, uh, I would like to say no. I honestly, the joking aside, though, I, I, um, I really, um, I mean, there's a lot of ifs and buts here. If my career grows, if I'm allowed to even make another film, that's another question in itself. But um, I would like to. Um, uh, Carry on making films that you know. I, um, going back to what they uh, said uh, there, like, do I think about what I would see and then hope others will join in? I would like to carry on and, uh, doing that kind of stuff. And you know, um, also something Ben told me years ago was um, when I um, told him about this idea in the script, and he said, you know, uh, if you make films like this, you'll never drive a sports car. But I'm sure you don't. You know, that's not top of your priorities. <laughs> and you know, and it never was. You know, so I didn't get into this to drive a sports car, and you know. Um, and do anything like that if I can um, exist purely exist just by, by <laughs> making these films um, I'd be more than happy and I would never ever go anywhere near a studio <laughs> you know I, I, for me that would be just I, it would be on a personal level just for me against something that I I, I don't I mean it's not for me we do keep these tapes in order to blackmail people <laughs> later in their careers. <laughs> so, so that's, that's very important. But if any offers want to come along, I, I will <laughs> Well, I just want to say, we're going we're, we're, we're to have a drink together, and I hope you're, we're going to have a more informal conversation. Um, I just want to say, it's a great and a special pleasure, but also because um, Babak is in that situation where he's back here, he's been in this very room here, um, showing uh, at least four exercise films, yeah. and he's sat here with his unit and faced the wrath of the of the of the, of the critics in the front row, and here he is with a feature film, which is uh, which is the beginning, I think, of an extraordinary career. So um, please give it up for Babak Jalan. Thank you. So much. <laughs>